the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ephesians. Dad should be the primary one to make sure that there is some spiritual influence happening in your home. Again, you know, my wife loved to take initiative at the dinner table, and that's great. But it was ultimately on me to make sure that something happened in our home in relation to the spiritual growth and nurturing of our children. So it's shared, but the dads are called out here in verse 4 as being the ones to make sure that that is happening in your home. God designed families, and His design is beautiful and purposeful. As Pastor Gary will explain in today's message, God put fathers and mothers in their positions and bestowed certain characteristics and responsibilities to each that are crucial for raising children in a way that glorifies Him. Many of us come from broken or wounded homes, but He longs to restore us to His original design and fashion us into tools that administer His love to others, including our own spouses and children. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to close out the book of Ephesians. Let me just give you a quick running start so that we all know where we are up to this point. At this point in the book of Ephesians, Paul is talking now about the new life that we live in Christ. There are certain characteristics or certain qualities or certain aspects about the Christian life that once you receive Christ, you need to understand is the way you're supposed to live. And so these various topics he covers from chapters 4 through 6 have to do with attitudes and thoughts, speech and words, temper, work ethic, treatment of others, our sexuality, the use of alcohol, various roles in the home and workplace. And then he's going to round out chapter 6 by talking about spiritual warfare. So we'll talk about that as well. But along these lines, kind of now getting different points out of all these topics that he has been talking about in these closing few chapters of the book of Ephesians, so far we've looked at 17 different points. I'm going to rattle through the list. If you haven't been here, you won't be able to write these down fast enough. But here they are, just by way of review. He tells us that the new life has to be learned. He tells us that the new life has to break ties with the old life. 
He talks about number three, how the new life begins with a renewed mind, new thoughts and attitudes. Those are all from chapter four. Then he also speaks in chapter four about the new life lives like God in righteousness and holiness. That's how we are called to live like him in righteousness and holiness. We're also about the new life is about speech, how we are to guard our mouths and guard our tongues from the way that we talk. The new life does not let anger become sin. These are all the way that we are to practice our faith in living it out in response to what God has done for us. Number seven on the list, he says, the new life is careful not to give Satan any opportunities. Don't be compromising in your life that would allow Satan an opportunity to take advantage of something even further. Number eight, he says, the new life works hard and gives to others instead of taking from others. Number nine on the list, the new life does not do things that would grieve the spirit of God. Number 10 on the list, he said, the new life replaces bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander with kindness, compassion, and forgiveness toward others. And he adds there at the end of chapter 4, as Christ has forgiven you. Number 11 on our list, the new life imitates God with a life of love. Number 12, the new life is a sexually pure life into chapter 5. He says, number 13, the new life replaces impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, and coarse joking with thanksgiving. Number 14 on our list, the new life leaves the darkness and lives as light in the Lord. Number 15, the new life is being filled with the Spirit instead of being drunk on wine. Number 16, the new life has a desire to worship the Lord and to encourage others to do the same. And then number 17, at the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he talks about how the new life practices biblical submission in whatever role you find yourself. And by that, what he's talking about is he breaks it down, whether you're a wife or a husband, whether you're children, whether you're a parent, whether you're an employee or an employer, there has to be an understanding of biblical submission. Now, we talked about the definition of biblical submission. It is three things we find in scripture. Number one, it is about mutual harmony. He says there in chapter five, verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there needs to be this mentality that we're all on the same team, whether you are talking about in the home or the place where you work or in terms of government and authority structures, we're all on the same team as Christians. We're all to be working together in harmony. So that's the idea of biblical submission. It's submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ, chapter 5, 21. Number two, it is unto the Lord. You'll notice throughout the whole outline when he starts talking about wives and husbands, and then he goes on. And in chapter 6, we'll look at tonight, he talks about children and parents, and then he talks about slaves and masters, that it is unto the Lord, that our ultimate submission is unto the Lord. It reveals itself in practical ways by the way that we honor and respect those who are in authority, but it is ultimately unto the Lord. And therefore, it means that if you are ever asked to do something that is contrary to Scripture, that is a clear violation of Scripture, you are not obligated to honor authority in those instances. And number three, biblical submission is about structure, not about subservience. The word for submission is hupotasso. In the Greek, it is a military term. Hupo meaning under, tasso meaning to arrange in an orderly fashion. And so that's the idea of an arranged order so that there might be structure, not so that someone is better than or less than. 
It's not about subservience. It's about structure. And God has put certain structures in place that it might contribute to the harmony and to the oneness within that unit, whatever you find yourself, whether it's the unit of the home, the unit of the office, the unit of our country in different respects. So that's where we're going with this topic tonight as we continue into chapter six, because we're still looking at the idea of biblical submission now as it relates to children and parents and slaves and masters. And we'll talk about that and what that means. And then the end of chapter six onto this very heavy topic about spiritual warfare. What does it mean? He's going to close this whole letter by saying, listen, in addition to all these different ways that you need to live out your faith in response to what Christ has done for you on the cross, you need to be aware that there's a battle that you and I are in. And it is a battle that is unseen. It is a battle not with flesh and blood. In other words, sometimes we think our battle is with people. A lot of times it's not even really related to people. It's about spiritual things in the heavenly realms that are having an influence or an impact on us that we cannot see. And Paul says, be on your guard about this and stay strong in the Lord because you need to understand that your enemy, the devil, is out to destroy you, to attack you, to try to derail you in your Christian life. And so he closes this letter with some very strong language he uses in allegorical terms, comparing it to a Roman soldier and how we need to be on our guard and be ready to fight this battle. So let's look here into chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He talks about this whole submission structure within the home. He says in in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And then he adds in verse four, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so here we have this this admonition and this uh, exhortation related to the the parent-child relationship in the home. It is, again, part of the structure. It's not that God loves mom and dad more than he loves children, but children are to submit to the authority of their parents in the home. So children are to obey their parents. But again, notice it is obey your parents in the Lord. And so children are to honor their parents and to obey their parents as it relates to what is right and what is godly. Children don't have to obey mom and dad if it is clearly against scripture. Now, if you are a parent, don't let that alarm you. And if you're a child, don't let that make you think you have liberty now to just do whatever you jolly well want. I don't think God wants me to do that. No, that's not the answer. The answer has to be, that's a clear violation of scripture, but it is to be unto the Lord. It is a matter of submission to authority because Christ is the one that you ultimately want to honor in honoring your parents. And when you honor your parents, you honor the Lord. When you dishonor your parents, you dishonor the Lord. It is the fifth commandment among the Ten Commandments. It is commandment number five. And in Exodus 20, verse 12, where that commandment is listed, it is the first commandment that ends with a promise. It speaks there in Exodus 20, 12, and Paul kind of summarizes it there in verse 3 here of Ephesians 6 that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. That God promises as part of a child's respect of authority and obedience to parents that uh, it will lengthen their lives. So it's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, understand the culture in, in which Paul is writing. This is first century. This is Roman Empire. And he's going to add now in verse 4 an exhortation to fathers in particular. 
I think this, this would apply to moms and dads in general, but specifically he's referring now to fathers and he says to them, do not exasperate your children. So there is this warning here to dads. Don't exasperate your children. Don't bring them to the place through, through your harshness or through your mistreatment of them, causing them to be resentful or bitter or exasperated or upset, that they are to be understood in terms of those whom God loves, and you should love them and be tender with them and gracious to them, even in the way that we discipline as moms and dads. We are not to exasperate our children. Now, this is actually revolutionary thinking in first century Rome, because in the Roman Empire, parents had absolute authority over their children, including life and death. Under the Roman Empire, it was in Latin, it was called patria potestas. Patria potestas, it meant parental power, that a mom and dad had the rights over their child exclusively, even if they thought their child warranted death. Paul comes in and he says, all right, now Christians, I don't really care what the Roman Empire is saying. You don't have absolute authority over your children. God does. And as part of respecting their lives, you are to honor them and cherish them and love them and nurture them and care for them. You do not have absolute authority over them in terms of life and death. All children are on loan from God. Do we get that? And as a result, we need to honor God's precious gifts. We've talked about this on Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago when we were in the book of Psalms. We're talking about, you know, how children are a blessing from the Lord. They are a heritage. They are a reward from God. So we need to make sure that even as parents, we're not doing anything to provoke our children, that even in the way we discipline them, we are to do it in a loving way, we are to do it in a tender way, we are to do it in a godly way, because our ultimate responsibility, he adds there after he says, do not exasperate your children, he says instead is to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The training and instruction of the Lord. Your primary responsibility as parents is to instruct your children and to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. Do not leave that as the primary responsibility to the church. Now, I know we have some wonderful Sunday school teachers who are back there even now teaching your children, but they are not the primary people responsible for raising your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is yours as parents. Now, I don't know what form that looks like, But in your home, you need to take time to read scripture with your kids, pray with your kids. Now, credit to my wife, because she really took the initiative at our dinner time when our kids were younger and still live in her home. Now all our kids are gone to get out a Bible and for us to read and for us to pray together. She even had little cards to memorize scripture verses, and it was just a wonderful thing. I mean, like, you know, I I get paid for this, so, you know, I'm I'm not interested in doing any of that at home. (laughs) So, so Terry, it's all yours, you know, go ahead. No, I I wasn't that cavalier about it. I took it seriously, too, but I just love the way that she wanted to take the initiative to have family devotion. So I'm like, all right, I'm all for it, but if we want to go for it, I'll support it. And so our dinner table became a time when we would have regular just reading of Scripture and praying. And, you know, when the kids are really little, you know, you can't get too deep and you can't go too long because their attention span is like this, you know. But you can do enough to impart Scripture and to plant seeds into their hearts. 
and sing some songs together and just make it a fun time and instill in your kids the instruction of God's word and do what you can to help bring them up in the ways and the instruction of the Lord and find what works for your family. And I don't want to be legalistic about it. I'm not trying to throw a legalistic trip on anybody like it has to be every day and you have to do this and you have to do that. But it should be with some regularity. It should be with some consistency. It should be instilling in your children the truth of God's word and the relationship of Jesus and loving them and making sure that even in the way you discipline them, you are not harsh, you are not abrasive, you are certainly not in any way beating them or harming them physically, but you are loving them, nurturing them, honoring them, respecting them as lives on loan from God. So it goes both ways here. Again, chapter 521 was submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's children submitting to their parents, honoring and obeying them. It is parents In this sense, submitting to your children in the sense of like never exasperating, honoring them, loving them, nurturing them in the ways of the Lord, not just this absolute authority like in the Roman Empire. So Paul, this is revolutionary stuff in Paul's day that he's challenging fathers in particular. And, you know, I know some of you are in homes where you're a single parent trying to raise kids and you're doing double duty as mom and dad. And God bless you for doing that because it's even more difficult when you're doing it alone. And so there's a special blessing, I'm sure, for you for trying to be mom and dad. But if there is a home where there's mom and dad, and dad is saved, assuming dad's a believer, dad should be the primary one to make sure that there is some spiritual influence happening in your home. Again, you know, my wife loved to take initiative at the dinner table, and that's great. But it was ultimately on me to make sure that something happened in our home in relation to the spiritual growth and nurturing of our children. So it's shared, but the dads are called out here in verse 4 as being the ones to make sure that that is happening in your home. Now into verse 5 through uh, 9, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free, and masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. So we come to this passage here that where Paul addresses slaves and masters. And, and I'm going to address what might be a question to uh, some of you or even many of you. And before we even kind of dissect this passage a little bit, and that is the, the question that, that stumps many people, which is, you know, why is it that the Bible doesn't seem to speak out forcefully against slavery? Why is it that there's not a whole lot of scripture verses which overtly condemn slavery? It's almost like Paul is just writing here like this is a normal and natural thing and that he's giving instructions in in regards to slavery and and those who are masters over slaves that it seems uncomfortable, doesn't it, when you're reading this? So let me just address that for a moment before we dissect the passage here. First of all, in first century Rome, there were millions of people who were slaves. 
and it was part of the condition of the Roman Empire. I'm not saying it was a good thing. It was a terrible thing. It's a wicked thing. Slavery, whenever there's anybody who's enslaved to another human being, it's, it's a wicked and evil and sinful thing. I'm just pointing out the fact that it was a very common thing in the Roman Empire. A lot of times because of the stain on our own American history, we immediately associate slavery as a racial issue. But in Roman Empire days, it was not really the enslaving of different races. It was oftentimes the enslaving of your own people. It wasn't primarily a racial matter. It was a matter of people who owned others as either slaves who were voluntary or involuntary. And King James refers to them sometimes as bond servants. It's the Greek word doulos. And so it's difficult sometimes to know in certain contexts during the Roman Empire, there were some who were slaves by choice and there were some who were slaves involuntarily. They were taken captive as part of the spoils of war or whatever the case might be. Sometimes you sold yourself as an indentured servant because you couldn't pay your bills. And so then you sold yourself, received money to work for someone to be able to pay off your bills until such time you could raise enough money in the course of working for someone to buy back your freedom. It was a very complex issue. But I want to make it clear that the Bible never condones slavery, although there's not a lot of verses about it. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 is one example where Paul in his letter to Timothy clearly talks about slave traders being evil, and he lumps them in a category like murderers and perverts and like adulterers. Those are words he uses in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and in verse 10 he, he lumps slave traders in with it. We also see in in Scripture that in Galatians 3.28, that Paul makes it clear that there is neither uh, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ. And that verse alone in Galatians 3.28 elevates everybody as having equal status before God. So when you look at this, then it becomes like, well, why doesn't he speak out against how wrong it is? Even though there aren't a lot of verses, there's another verse in the, in the book of Exodus that talks about you, you shall never enslave another person lest you be stoned to death. It was a capital offense. But even though there's not a lot of scripture that overtly condemns slavery, let me tell you how Christianity covertly overthrew slavery. When Christianity began to creep through the world, it was the undoing of slavery in the Roman Empire. Now, you can do fact-checked on this, but the reality is that when Christianity started overtaking the Roman Empire, it was what led in part to not only the collapse of the Roman Empire in general, but to the dissolution of slavery overall. Because what happens is, when you are recognizing that the slave is your brother, it's pretty hard to mistreat him or her. And what would happen in first century Rome is that you'd have masters and slaves going to the same church. And in some cases, you'd have slaves who were elders of a church having authority over their masters in that local church. And what happened was it created an awareness that there is no difference before God. And so it leveled the playing field in terms of mutual respect and love and appreciation for each other. And it ended up contributing to the demise of slavery throughout the Roman Empire because the church began to live out their faith in demonstration that one person is not better than another. So even though you can't find scripture, a whole lot of it that overtly condemns it, you can see Christianity in history that covertly began to dissolve slavery because of the equality of men and women and slave and free and Jew and Greek before God. In our more recent history, look, the problem with slavery 
ended up being addressed and ultimately dissolved again through Christian influence. When it first started in the 1700s in Great Britain with a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, a parliamentarian in Great Britain's parliament, he was the one, as a Christian, who was outspoken against this as a vile and an evil sin and an offense against God. In fact, William Wilberforce said, quote, a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all, end quote. And it was largely due to his influence when slavery was outlawed throughout Great Britain, and then America followed slowly after that, again, because of the same Christian influence. So, understand that even though he's writing here and he doesn't use strong language to condemn it, he's not condoning it. What he's writing about is, okay, this is the reality for the moment in the Roman Empire. How are you to make the best of an unfortunate situation? And in modern application, we need to see this, again, not to try to diminish the horror of slavery, but it would be good for us to see this in terms of employees and employers. How can we apply this in modern terms? Because again, some slaves were indentured servants. You've been listening to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Thanks for joining us as we learn from the book of Ephesians. It's no secret that humans are imperfect. In many of his letters, Paul addresses how imperfect people can cause disunity. It's easy to look at all the ways we are different and forget to see all the ways in which we are the same. All of us are loved by God and all of us have been saved by grace. Let that motivate you to look at those around you differently and seek unity. Always, if you'd like to hear this message again, feel free to visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, or download our mobile app and have these teachings with you on the go. That way, you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app under the Teachings tab on our website. While you're there, you can also learn more about Cornerstone Chapel, the church behind this ministry. If you're in the area, we'd love to connect with you. Find service times, directions, and more on our website. That's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We look forward to you joining us again next time, right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go but still you know, still you know you're, not alone. you're not alone Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise Hope is an open ocean, jump in and you'll find the cornerstones Your connection run towards your new
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.